The Water Values Podcast, Session 123. Welcome to the Water Values Podcast. This is the podcast dedicated to water utilities, resources, treatment, reuse, and all things water. Now here's your host, Dave Meadows. Welcome to another session of the Water Values Podcast. As my daughter Sarah said, my name is Dave McGimsey, and thanks for joining me. We have a great show for you today. We've got a Bluefield on Tap segment, and we've got our feature guest, Jenny Kale, from the University of Wisconsin-Milwaukee. But before we get into the heart of the show, a few uh, housekeeping items as we normally do. First, I'd like to thank a couple folks for leaving great reviews on Apple Podcasts. First uh, is Lenane Labrat. I hope I pronounced that right. Lenane Labrat with a five-star rating and a great review that says, thank you. Excellent podcast on updates, information, developments, and education for water professionals and consumers. Well, thank you very much for that great rating and review, Lenane Labra. Much appreciated. We also have one from uh, Relta HJD. Uh, Relta HJD. So thank you very much for a five-star rating and a review that reads, Water is essential for life, and so is this podcast, if you care about water and the water industry. Topics are current. Guests are thought leaders. Great work, Dave. Please keep it up. Well, thank you very much, Relta HJD. I really appreciate you taking the time to uh, complete a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts. And if you've been enjoying the show, please consider doing so. If you haven't left a uh, rating or review already, I would really appreciate it. It's just a great way for uh, list for people who are looking for a podcast about water to kind of assess which podcast they want to listen to and, uh, and, and just let them know that this is the podcast to listen to. Um, one other thing, uh, housekeeping item is, uh, uh, for those of you who've donated to the podcast to help us keep the lights on, would really appreciate it. Keep the lights on. What am I talking about? Help keep the valves open. How's that? And, uh, you can do so by going to the watervalues.com and you scroll down the screen a little bit. There's a little yellow donate button. You can click on that and, uh, PayPal will take care of the rest. Any denomination is greatly appreciated. Again, it just helps, uh, support the podcast and defray the costs of putting the podcast on. Well, we've got, uh, some great guests. I said, we've got Jenny Kale as our feature interview today from the university of Wisconsin, uh, Milwaukee. She's going to talk about virtual water and a, a wide range of issues that virtual water affects. We also have Reese Tisdale back for a Bluefield on tap segment. And Reese is going to talk about, uh, Bluefield Research's uh, newest CapEx, uh, study that was just released. And, uh, without further ado, let's get to Reese Tisdale with Bluefield on tap. <laughs> Well, Reese, welcome back to another Bluefield on Taps. I've been great to have you with us. I'm glad to be here. All right. Awesome. Uh, so uh, Bluefield Research just released a CapEx report. Can you tell us a little bit about, uh, you know, what you're, what's going on in that report? Well, it's funny you bring it up because the first time I think, Dave, we ever talked was a full episode talking about our first CapEx forecast in the U.S. And so that was, well, a year and a half ago at least. And yeah. so now we've basically taking a look back at the U.S. market, uh, looked at 100 cities across the U.S., looked at capital improvement plans, where cities, not only in total, total dollars, where they're allocating their their funds towards water, wastewater, stormwater, but what we've also done is taken it a step further and said, okay, within that, by analyzing the CIPs for every, every utility, be able to break down how much is going to pipes, how much is going to valves, how much is going to 
you know, fleets for uh, vehicles? How many go on the smart meters and such? So it's been, uh, as always, a daunting exercise going through all the details of data. And at the end of the day, we've come out with $683 billion being spent between now and 2027 based on that data. Wow, that's a big spend. Uh, what Can you can I give, give us uh, a breakdown of, of uh, where the money is being spent? Because $683 billion can buy a lot of pipe and build a couple of treatment plants. Yeah, so, I mean, I think as one would expect. I mean, as we've, we've talked about, and I think, you know, the U.S., the number always thrown about is there over a million and a half miles of pipe uh, underground in the U.S. It's a lot of pipe. So, that's where a lot of the spend is going. So distribution and collection networks represents about $375 billion of the total. Of that, pipes represent just under $300 billion. So it's a pretty big chunk, the rest yeah. being you know, the pumps and such. But when you think about it, one thing that I don't think I've ever done, and everybody talks about this million and a half miles, that's enough for three round trips to the moon. <laughs> that's, man, that's a lot of pipe. Yeah, I mean, it's kind of crazy. So, look, I mean, that's where a big chunk of it's going. The next, you know, the next chunk is going to treatment plants and facilities, and that makes sense. There's a lot of equipment kit that goes into that. But what we're starting to see, and this was interesting to look at the budgets and see how utilities are planning, is as, as expected, and we've talked about this, is smart water, data and analytics, and IT and hardware uh, a lot of that being smart meters, that takes up a growing amount, and that's, you know, $16, 17000000000 billion over the next 10 years, which, you know, relative to the pipe market is pretty small, but it's growing. And then one other little slice that I think you've had guests talk about in some cases, green infrastructure. Mm -hmm. We're starting to see more and more projects dedicated to green infrastructure, and I'd say we're being pretty conservative. It's only several billion dollars over the 10-year period, but the reality of it is I think utility or municipalities as a whole are doing other things within the city that are that are considered green infrastructure that may not be captured in the utility budgets. But that's something we're seeing, particularly with uh, new types of bond financing like we've seen in D.C. Water. I think we're also seeing that now in Baltimore as well. So there's some, there are some definitely interesting things that come out of it. Yeah, yeah. Hey, can I can I um, uh, dig into the pipe a little more? I'm kind of curious. Are you able to discern from those CIPs? You know what? You know what? You know what is the split between kind of replacement of aging infrastructure and extension of new facilities? Yeah. So we try to do that. So we go project by project when available and start figuring that out, and then sort of base that on our existing knowledge and data. So it's about 60% replacement uh, mm -hmm. is, is, uh, is how those pipe dollars are going, and then the rest going to new build. And you can also, we can also see how that varies regionally. So obviously in the west or in the city, in the high-growth cities, you're seeing you know, a lot more new build. That makes sense. Whereas in the east, you're not seeing as much. It's a lot more replacement. Yeah, yeah, and and in terms of, uh, I think this, this might be a little outside the the scope of your report, but um, for new infrastructure build, that's going to be kind of developer dollars, right? It's going to be growth paying for growth, whereas the replacement tab is on the ratepayers as a whole. Exactly. Yeah, 
Exactly. That's sort of, but it is a little bit out of scope, but yeah, I mean, you're, that's, you're exactly right. Okay. Okay. Uh, anything else that's, uh, kind of, you know, jumped out at you in, in your CapEx report without giving away the secret sauce, of course, but, uh, no, no, other than hard work, (laughs) Um, it's, uh, it's one thing that was interesting that came out of it. And I think there'll be more information put out at least on our website pretty soon. And that is, the you know we started looking at just per capita spend and they really you know across 100 cities it's interesting to sort of see what's driving the spend and what it is across the board so over a 10-year period the average is about a little over 2600 dollars per person um which you know doesn't seem that much but when you look at places like uh, miami-dade it's eleven thousand dollars per person wow is the high whereas Riverside County, California, is a low at 157 per person. So it's interesting to see how their budget, you know, what they're spending on a, you know, dollar per person, uh, per person served by the by the networks. Yeah, that that, that I mean, do you uh, you 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 identified kind of Miami Dade, so Southeast versus California, you know, West. Uh, any any other regional differences in the per capita spend? You know, it's really a, a big driver behind it are things like consent decrees. So I think Jack, I believe it's Jackson, Mississippi, um, just, you know, they've just enacted a consent decree. So it looks like their dollars are starting to rise in their budgets. Um, it, it, it is very specific. Pittsburgh's is pretty high, but Pittsburgh, as we know, has had some problems <laughs> as of late. Yeah. They're kind of going through their own issues. Yeah. But it does vary. And then of all places, looking at the data, I'm from Charleston, South Carolina originally, and I was shocked when we saw that I saw that pop up. No one else in the office seemed to care because no one's <laughs> from there, but I am, and was was surprised how high that number was. Yeah. Interesting. Well, Reese, always great information when we talk with you. So, so glad you were able to come on, and uh, we'll talk to you next time. Thanks so much for coming. Thanks, Dave. Take it easy. I appreciate it. You bet. We'll talk soon. Bye, Reese. Thanks. Well, as always, Reese does a fantastic job putting that Bluefield on Tap segment together, uh, coming up with the content for it on a monthly basis. So thank you very much, Reese, for coming on and doing that. Um, it is now time to get to Jenny Kale and our feature interview. Uh, you know, as I indicated earlier, Jenny's going to talk about virtual water. She does a great job. You're really going to learn a lot from this. Um, especially I, I learned a tremendous amount because I, I really, I, I mean, I'd heard of virtual water. I vaguely knew what it was. Uh, but, uh, I just learned a tremendous amount from Jenny and I hope you will too. So with that said, let's get to it. Open the valves, fasten your seatbelts. And here we go. Well, Jenny, welcome to the Water Values Podcast. Thanks so much for coming on and sharing a little bit of your expertise and uh, and and spending some time with us today. For starters, could you tell us a little about your background and how you got interested in water? Sure. Thanks for inviting me. I'm very excited to talk about the virtual water concept today. I got started in water because I had been fortunate to travel um, the world looking at foreign investment particularly in extractive industries, um, during my graduate school program. And I found that water was the most compelling issue, cross-cutting across economic sectors, political sectors, manufacturing, industrial, across regional sectors, Asia, Africa, uh, the United States, anywhere I went, it seemed that water scarcity was the most compelling issue and the most condemning in some places for people economically. 
Okay, so you obviously um, mentioned virtual water, and that's what we're talking about today. Uh, could you could you give us a broad brush as to what virtual water is? Sure. Virtual water is the hidden water that it takes to produce products. So when you hear that a product is water intensive, what that means obviously is that it requires a tremendous amount of water to produce. Uh, agriculture in particular is very water intensive, obviously because of um, irrigation practice, practices. But that water is hidden, so we don't often look at how much water or how high the water intensity of a product actually is. And as water scarcity grows, I believe that it's going to become more and more important to look at the amount of embedded water or hidden water that we're using to produce the things that we consume. Okay, I think you hinted at the answer to this next question, but but let me ask it anyway. Why is virtual water such an important concept uh, that we all need to to be able to, to understand and wrap our minds around it? Um, well, I'm so glad you asked because it hasn't always been. I think it's just becoming increasingly important now because we're addressing scarcity issues that we've never had to deal with to this degree in the past. Uh, virtual water use has always been important in dry areas or already water-scarce areas where they've talked about it as water efficiency for a long time. But in most of the world, including the Great Lakes region, we've had the luxury of not having to examine this issue until now. But we've crossed a threshold in water. And now water is such a valuable commodity and such a valuable input for our production process that I believe we're going to have to take into consideration the amount of virtual water in our input processes from here forward. Okay. So and it's become increasingly important. It's also important because it's a tremendous amount of water. We're not talking about a minuscule or a negligible amount of water any longer. It's really quite significant, and it would be similar to loading up tankers of water and shipping them out. And yet that would be very obvious and seeable, whereas the virtual water or the hidden water to produce products is not as obvious or seeable. But virtual water is being exported in just as large of quantities as if we were loading it on tankers or on train cars and shipping it out directly. Okay, Jenny, I apologize. I forgot to ask this early on, but could you, could you fill us in on what your uh, area of study is and, and you know, kind of what you're focusing on these days? Great. Well, regarding virtual water, I'm looking at virtual water exports from the Great Lakes region and how much water we're exporting on a daily basis from the Great Lakes Basin, primarily through agriculture. And we're exporting about 1,800 million gallons per day of virtual water from the Great Lakes. So I'm looking at that as part of our export that hasn't been measured or taken into consideration in our water management policies prior. And I'm also looking at water trade internationally and the hidden global water trade in virtual water. The U.S. and Japan are the largest virtual water importers and exporters, and we have a very interesting relationship in terms of our agricultural trade across the oceans of virtual water content. So those are the things I'm looking at in virtual water right now. In the larger picture, I'm looking at virtual water because I'm interested in water scarcity and water conflict at the national and international level. And I believe this is one of the variables that we have mistakenly overlooked. Okay, one more question I need to ask to kind of round out your background and give our listeners some context uh, so that they can kind of uh, place place your expertise, uh, you know, within within a frame of reference. And that is, uh, you know, wh- where where are you working? What's your base of operations? Um, thank you for asking. I work at University of Wisconsin-Milwaukee, 
and I work at the School of Freshwater Sciences there, which focuses on incorporating good scientific information into better decision-making. So I work at University of Wisconsin-Milwaukee. Awesome. Now, you mentioned a lot of things in there about, uh, uh, you know, virtual water, and, and a lot of it, uh, in, uh, what you've referenced so far, primarily deals with the ag sector. So let me, let me pose this question to you. What are the most common issues you're seeing in the virtual water space in the ag sector? And, and if you could, could you answer that for the, uh, for the manufacturing sector as well? Mm-hmm. Well, in the agricultural sector, one of the biggest issues that we're facing is water inefficiency in irrigation. So flood irrigation, for example, is not necessary in a lot of places, and yet it's still widely used. That's an outdated technology. It's actually a lack of technology, in my opinion. And so there's a lot that can be done to improve the irrigation methods that we use and the water waste that is associated with it. And then in the manufacturing sector, um, one of the greatest ways we lose the virtual water is actually through pollution and contamination and water that's taken out of the hydrological cycle because it is too polluted after it has gone through the industrial process to be reintroduced into the water system. So when we're looking at virtual water, how are we measuring it? That's a good question. Virtual water being the embedded water in the product is the amount of water that it takes to produce the product. However, there are some problems with that. Uh, Really what we should be measuring is just the consumptive use of water. There are parts of that water that are returned to the hydrological process and the basin from which the water was originally taken. So that water shouldn't be included in the studies of virtual water that have the most integrity. Uh, But the consumptive use of water means if it's removed, diverted, used or polluted to the point where it cannot be returned to the basin, or if it's evapotranspired, if there's evaporation that removes it from the system as part of the process, those kinds of consumptive uses can be calculated in virtual water. So, Jenny, I've got a confession. You were you were referred to me a long time ago, um, and I'm I'm old just now getting you on on the podcast. So you've had you, you you've had a good name out there in the field of virtual water for a long time, and I apologize it's taken me this long to get you on, but but. I think one of the things that, that, that people have the most trouble wrapping their minds around when they hear about virtual water and things like that are, you know, you see these these infographics and statistics that say, oh, it takes, you know, 2,054.6 gallons of water uh, to, you know, to produce a pound of beef. So I guess my question is, you know, how are we measuring this in terms of consumptive use? I mean, is it is it water that enters the system and doesn't leave the system, or or you know, what what do we what what is what does the measurement look like? That's right. It cannot return to the system, and so there are two ways to measure virtual water. I would advocate, obviously, for the consumptive use model. It's a little bit more restrictive, but I think a little bit more has a little bit more integrity in terms of measurement. Um, So, yes, it's really the withdrawal, the amount of water withdrawn to produce, minus the return flow. So if some of that water is returned to the system, then we would take that out of our measurement of the amount of virtual water that's consumed. Okay, can you walk us through a typical calculation of virtual water? Um, And let's, you know, uh, let's, let's use the pound of beef example. Right, so that largely um, soil engineers are involved, agricultural engineers are involved, and what they'll look at is how much water does it take to produce the product, and that for beef, 
the very water intensive part of that product is actually growing the food for the beef to eat, for the cattle to eat. And so it takes into account all of those inputs. So for example, if the beef are fed corn, then the water intensivity of the amount of corn that is required to feed the animals is incorporated into that calculation. So for beef, that's why it is one of the most water intensive products is actually because of what the cattle eat. And so it looks at the lifespan of the cattle and how much food they consume and how much water they consume and how much water it takes to produce the food that they consume, uh, as well as for uh, maintenance, sanitation of the animals, those kinds of things. It looks at how much water is withdrawn for that purpose and then how much of that water is returned. So the withdrawal minus the return will come up with the virtual water calculation. Now, beef is very high no matter uh, which virtual water measure you use, but it's a little bit higher if you don't incorporate the water that's returned. If you have large um, scale feeding operations, then you also have a water pollution problem and a lot of that water um, could in some cases be considered consumptive use because it is too highly polluted to reintroduce to the hydrological system when it's returned, when it would otherwise be returned. Uh, so that's a very water intensive endeavor. Okay, thank you for that. Now, can you know what are some other products uh, whose virtual water content uh, or and water intensity is is very high? Uh, in the agricultural sector, beef is often the highest by a long shot. Uh, rice is also highly water consumptive because of the way that it's grown. It's very water intensive to produce. There are some new technologies emerging to make that a little bit more efficient process. Almonds are also flood irrigated, so that's a very water-intensive process. They're also grown in uh, water-scarce regions where there's high evaporation as well. So flood irrigating almonds, for example, has a lot of water waste associated, and a lot of virtual water is used to produce almonds. In the manufacturing sector, it's often high-end technologies or technologies that require a very high level of purity in the water for their production process because they actually use a lot of water and a lot of energy in the process of purifying water to the point that it is of the quality that they can produce the high-end um, technologies. So computer screens, for example, are very water intensive. So Jenny, one of the things I want to uh, explore with you is um, why water intensive products or crops are grown in water scarce regions and the the one you, the one that i see most often i guess is um is um alfa, why is alfalfa grown in arid regions of the west so what i'd really like to 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 understand is you know do you, do you have an opinion as to to why water intense or water intensive crops or products are uh, grown or manufactured in arid regions. Yes. Well, that's a very important point. That's actually one of the motivational factors for why I do the kind of work that I do. And it's not a calculation that I came up with my own, but people more intelligent than I am who've been studying this longer than I have, have produced empirical evidence, as you mentioned, that some of our most water-intensive crops are grown in our most arid regions. And that's true at the national level in the U.S., and it's true to some degree worldwide as well. In the U.S., uh, when I started looking into this, 
one of the reasons that I found is because initially the water subsidies and the energy subsidies to pump that water some distance to arid areas was highly subsidized to support a very small group of family farms that wanted to survive in some of those arid regions. However, some of those policies that were put in place, the subsidies for water and agriculture in particular, I mean, water and energy in particular, in arid regions, then encouraged the larger scale production of those commodities in areas that would not otherwise be amenable to those products. So we have that case in California and Texas, for example. In California, there were water subsidies and energy subsidies in place to pump water great distances to get it to the arid regions of California. But for those water and energy pumping subsidies, large-scale agriculture and water-intensive crops would not have naturally sprung up there because it wouldn't have been profitable and it would not have been environmentally sustainable. So we have a somewhat backwards and antiquated policy in place that provides water subsidies and energy subsidies for pumping water to arid areas to produce water-intensive products in water-scarce regions. So I would argue that those policies need to be corrected to address the water realities that we face today, which is, as you mentioned, that water-intensive products should be produced in water-rich regions as opposed to water-scarce regions where they're currently produced. Do you have any specific examples of uh, some of these these uh, misplaced policies? Um, it's just the general water subsidies. So subsidizing water use, um, the more water you use, the less it costs per unit, for example, and then energy subsidies to pump water great distances. And those are those are prevalent in a lot of states, but they're they're particularly <clears throat> old and they're particularly large in dry states in the American. West and American Southwest, for example. So, so what about on an international level? Are there are there are there policies in other countries, uh, or or you know you know things in, just on an international basis as to that that would promote the production or growth of you know water intensive products or crops uh, in in water scarce regions. Yes, at the international level, so there's no international policy, but there is, uh, there are certain realities of the international food crop trade and the difference between wealthy nations and less wealthy nations and the international trade dynamics and realities. So one of those uh, between the U.S. and Japan, for example, both wealthy countries, uh, is that Japan as an archipelago, a very mountainous archipelago region, has limited large tracts of land to produce food, whereas the U.S. has very large tracts of land and can trade directly across the Pacific with Japan. And so we've created this dynamic where we grow a lot of food, particularly in the American Southwest and California, very dry regions, that is exported water-intensive crops that are then exported to Japan because Japan has the money to pay the U.S. to produce those crops in those regions. And so that's part of the international food crop trade market dynamics that are at work in that regard. So one of the things that we need to look at is uh, Japan is the largest virtual water importer worldwide, 
and the U.S. is the largest virtual water exporter worldwide, and that's primarily because of this food crop trade between the U.S. and Japan. So I think we need to take a look at that relationship and try to figure out how to continue to have some mutual benefit from that while incorporating the full cost to the U.S. of producing water-intensive products in water-scarce regions. And until now, we've had the luxury of neglecting to look at that reality. But as drought expands in the American Southwest and California and Texas, those food products will become increasingly scarce as a result of drought and exceedingly expensive, uh, which may affect that food crop trade and may hurt both economies on both sides of the Pacific. So those are the kinds of trade dynamics that we need to look at in terms of the content of virtual water. So where does that lead us? I mean, we're, you know, in terms of developing policies uh, and other measures so that we don't promote the inefficient use of water, um, are, are there uniform, you know, international guidelines? Are there policies we should be adopting? You know, what, what does that landscape look like? Yeah, unfortunately, there hasn't been much consensus. The conversation is fairly new, and the need for the conversation is just emerging. And I think one of the obstacles we face is that we don't have great calculations yet of virtual water. We're still experimenting with a lot of those. They're getting better as time progresses. But what we need to be able to do is look at the true virtual water content in what we're producing. And then we need to calculate the economic cost of that virtual water and start to incorporate that into the cost of the product. Okay. And I think that will get closer to correcting some of these uh, inverse relationships, such as growing water-intensive crops in water-scarce regions. What we've done to we've neglected to do is incorporate the true cost of the virtual water in those products. And that's going to start to have economic and environmental consequences for us now. So it's a good time to start examining those and putting policies in place. Yes, exactly. Cause you know, I, I'm a, I'm a big believer that water is, uh, is going to continue. Uh, I think it's already taken on somewhat of a role of being, uh, you know, a, a factor of production, so to speak, in the classical mm -hmm. economic sense. And I think that that prominence is only going to grow. Right. Um, you know, and, and so as as we look out in the future, I mean, what are we, wh what do you see on the horizon in terms of where this discipline is taking us? Mm -hmm. Well, I think, I think you just exactly articulated. I think as water, including virtual water, but even more importantly, all water, the actual water or concrete water that goes into pro products as well, uh, is in many cases the most important and the most valuable input. And yet the water is free. We do pay for water delivery systems and water infrastructure, but the water itself we either don't pay for at all or a negligible fee in comparison to the infrastructure and delivery costs. So I think what we need to do is look at water, as you suggested, as an input and a valuable input and start charging accordingly so that the water is not free. There's no other input that I can think of that is as important as water and is free to the users. So I think we need to reconsider how we price water, uh, particularly for large-scale consumers. Yeah, and, and, and I think... You know, I, I think that we're, we're starting to come to almost a reckoning of sorts uh, mm -hmm. in terms of water prices. You know, I, I, get, I have a little Google alert I get every day that 
Uh, mm. And, and uh, you know, what I think it's water and rates. And, man, there's, there's like 15 articles every, every day, it seems like, about someone raising water rates. And everyone's, you know, screaming bloody murder because water rates are increasing. But, mm-hmm. but it, I, I kind of think that, that as, as we start paying the, uh, what, let me just say, true market value for water, uh, mm-hmm. a, a lot of these things are going to start to get, get um, you know, they're, they're going to start to shake out in terms of how virtual water uh, is, is, you know, considered and how, how the price of water is, is put into the goods. I mean, I don't know. Do you have, a, do you have any thoughts on, on, on that aspect of it? I agree. I think that uh, almost free water is a luxury that we can no longer afford, either economically or environmentally. And I think we're going to have to make those difficult choices now of having to pay for the water. As you mentioned, you know, water prices increase, and yet little, if any, of that increase actually goes to pay for the water itself, but for the water infrastructure, which is equally important. But we may have to come up with different ways to finance in water infrastructure projects as well, because right now the money that we pay for our water bills is actually for the infrastructure and not for the water itself. Right. And so, yeah, I'm sorry. Paying for the for the water, um, as you suggested, as a, as a vital input for a lot of production processes. Yeah. So, do you anticipate that uh, virtual water is going to is going to play a role in in rate setting or anything or, or infrastructure decisions? I think it's going to play a role in how we calculate water waste because. A lot of if we do have a price mechanism for water as an input, that will also trigger a conservation mechanism, which is not a bad thing. So if you actually start charging for the water as opposed to just the water infrastructure or water delivery, then as I mentioned, you'll trigger a conservation mechanism and that will reduce waste. And in that way, right, there are um, water savings to be had in a variety of industries, particularly in the agricultural sector and the manufacturing sector of high-end technologies. And I think that um, is necessary. The time has come. I mean, we can't continue to use water the same way that we've used it in the past, and we can't continue to use it for free any longer. So although it it may be a difficult economic transition, I think we are going to have to start paying for the water that we use, and I think we're going to have to start paying more per unit for large consumers as opposed to the way it is now, which is the more you use, the less it costs per unit. And I think that has created some pretty serious economic distortions and some pretty severe environmental consequences as well. So I think we're going to have to start charging large users more. Or the more you use, the more the water costs per unit as opposed to the opposite. So you're you're in favor of an inclining block? Yes. Schedule rates and charges. Okay. Um, I let me let me ask you this. I, can I? I'd like to tie this back to something you indicated earlier, and and that is one of the you're one of your things that you've uh, or you know areas of study is water conflict, right? So, mm-hmm. how, how does how are how is virtual water? Is there a relationship between virtual water and water conflict? Mm-hmm. Well, I'm looking for that because. <laughs> <laughs> You know, my primary commitment really is to national and international security around water resources. 
and the contribution that water makes to exacerbating conflicts. Some of those conflicts are specific to water, and some of those conflicts are actually about other things, other commodities, politics, a variety of different economic factors, things that you're well aware of. But there is often a water component that's overlooked, or water as a threat multiplier, or water that has uh, an exacerbating effect on the existing dispute. Syria is a very good example. The conflict in Syria is not over water. It's over very serious political and economic inequalities and the power struggle. But the water component of the conflict in Syria is critical to understand because it has literally driven tens of thousands of people into the conflict that but for the drought would not have joined the conflict. And so it's very important to look at how how do you stabilize water security in regions that are suffering from conflict for a variety of reasons. Because water efficiency is closely related to the virtual water content, I think those two are eventually going to become related. I think first it will be the actual water content, but then afterwards the virtual water content, or what I would also consider to be water waste, or water distortions will become much more critical because, as I mentioned, it's a tremendous quantity of water that's involved in the virtual water trade. If it were minuscule, uh, frankly, you know, I might not be as interested in terms of how much uh, water waste we could manage as a result of virtual water, but because it's so much water, in some cases 30, 40 percent, you know, it really is going to be important for us to look at in the future, especially trading it across borders. Yeah, I mean, I, 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 I am very interested to see how the future is going to shake out in this in this area. And if it's not apparent already, I'm I'm obviously a newbie to the virtual water space. And so, uh, is there anything that you'd like to say that I haven't asked? I mean, what have I missed, uh, or what what should I have asked? Uh, and can you please just kind of respond to that question that you'd asked yourself then? Well, it sounds like you're very well read on the topic. <laughs> I don't think so. <laughs> <laughs> um, most people have never heard of virtual water, and or they think it's a video game. So <laughs> I'm happy to talk with someone that has uh, been well read on virtual water content. I think uh, one of the most important things to think about in the future is as we address water scarcity, uh, we would be mistaken to overlook the vast quantities of water that are moved and traded and diverted through virtual water. Because as I mentioned, if we were loading up tankers and shipping them out or loading up trains and shipping them out of water, people would pay attention and they would want some policies in place as to, you know, how much of our water can you drain from a lake and put on a tanker and sell somewhere else? But because it's virtual water and it's hidden, we're moving equally as much water that way, if not more, but it's hidden and no one's paying attention. And I think the water savings in that area could be transformative. So when we look at water waste and water efficiency and exporting water across borders and the conflict that creates as water scarcity increases, I think virtual water is one of the areas that we can look to for potential solutions and possibly even some fairly technologically basic and economically fundamental solutions just through managing virtual water content that would, as I mentioned, have a transformative effect on the level of water waste. Interesting. You know, uh, the, the, the concept of uh, 
reducing water waste because you're more attuned to it, I think is, um, that, that's something there's, I think there's something there that, I, that that's interesting to hear from you. Um, well, Jenny, I think you, Jenny, you've been absolutely terrific. Uh, I've learned a tremendous amount because I didn't know a whole lot coming in. So I've, I've learned a tremendous amount from you today. And I just want to thank you for, very much for your time. And, and for those folks who want to find out more about you and your work, uh, where can they go to get that information? Um, well, thank you. I'm at University of Wisconsin-Milwaukee, and so they can look me up there. And I'd be happy to talk with anyone about virtual water contents, water waste, and also conflict related to water issues. Terrific. And uh, uh, just for, you know, for those of you listening at home, it's Jenny Kale, K-E-H-L. So if you're Googling, it's Jenny, K-E-H-L, Jenny Kale. All right. Well, Jenny, thank you again. Really appreciate your time. We'll put... Uh, We'll, we'll, we'll put a link to your bio or something on the show notes um, so that so that those who, who want to hit the show notes and, and just click right through, don't have to hit Google or anything for that, uh, can, can have an easy access to you. But, again, Jenny, thank you so much for your time. Really appreciate it, and we'll talk to you soon. Thanks, and thanks so much for your continued work on water ethics. There's not enough of that out there, and I really appreciate it. Oh, you bet. Thanks, Jenny. Take care. Uh-huh. Bye. Bye. Well, I hope you enjoyed that interview with Jenny Kale from the uh, University of Wisconsin-Milwaukee. I really appreciated her taking some time out of her day to come uh, talk with me. And, you know, as, as you could tell, she's got a, a lot of insight into this, uh, as well as, you know, really starting to focus on the conflict side of it. And I think that would be really interesting to explore with her uh, down the road. But in any event, again, really appreciated her time. So thanks so much, Jenny, for coming on. Uh, and, you know, for those of you out there who were, were listening – you know, let me know what you thought about the podcast. Leave a leave a comment on the show notes. You can find those at thewatervalues.com forward slash pod one, two, three. And, uh, you know, you can also tweet about the podcast using the hashtag water, value, water values. You can tweet at me at my handle, which is at DTM1993. You can send me an email at david at thewatervalues.com. Uh, you know, so, so would greatly appreciate you just let me know uh, what's going on in terms of uh, what you thought about the podcast. Much appreciated. So uh, with that said, um, we'd just like to say that in closing, please remember to keep the core message of the Water Values podcast in mind as you go about your daily business. Water is our most valuable resource, so please join me by going out into the world and acting like it. to the Water Values Podcast. Thank you for spending some of your day with my dad and me. Thank you for tuning in to the disclaimer. I'm a lawyer licensed in Indiana and Colorado, and this podcast does not establish an attorney-client relationship with you or anyone else. Information in this podcast should not be considered legal advice. Further, this podcast is not a solicitation for professional employment. I'm just a lawyer who finds water issues interesting and who believes greater public education about water issues is necessary. And that includes enhancing my own education about water issues because no one knows everything about water. Thanks for listening, and we'll talk to you next time.